This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So let me talk about uh, what we can learn uh, from congenital amnesia. Uh, first of all, I'd like to mention that we are all born to be musical, uh, and we all are. That is, musical engagement is ubiquitous and emerges early in life. And the best evidence is really that newborns respond to abstract properties of musical pitch and time structure, like changes in tonal key and disruptions of musical beat before the age of one. They also move spontaneously to music, and when moved in synchrony with music, they show enhanced pro-social behavior. So musical engagement is not only rooted in social interactions, but it is also a highly pleasurable experience. And I will illustrate it now with dance. This is not the prototypical musical situation, but think of it, it's really a musical activity. And I'd like you to pay attention to the first row and the last one. And these are the two extremes I'm really interested in. And I'm sorry, but I will turn first to the ones who don't have it. That is, they represent 1.5% of the population, and uh, that's what I'm referring to as congenital amusia. Uh, I call it congenital for the idea that it is present from birth. It defines a likely time period, not the etiology, although we have made a lot of progress regarding this. What's characterizing them is their inability to detect when someone sings out of tune, including themselves, (laughs) to recognize and sing a familiar tune without the aid of their lyrics, and to maintain tunes in memory. And uh, what is really fascinating is that it it emerged just in isolation from other disturbances such as speech, delay, intellectual deficiency, acquired brain damage, or even music deprivation. They are exposed to music like we all are. And they have normal understanding of speech and prosody in everyday life. It is also very similar to other learning disorders that you are familiar with, like dyslexia, for example, speech disorders like the one we heard earlier, dyscalculia, prosopagnosia. And uh, why are we so interested by this condition? It's because it is a natural experiment of the neurobiological origins of music, because it is an accident of nature. We didn't create it. It is a rare chance to link brain behavior and genes and also breakdown patterns reveal how the brain works. And I'll try to illustrate each of these points in a moment. With the, but I have to tell you how we do that. So we go from the behavior to, and I, and I will illustrate it so that you have an idea of what it is, uh, from a functional explanation to the uh, uh, brain correlates, how it is, what are the anomalies in the brain, to the etiology from the genes to 
the environmental factor. And I will illustrate it with someone who just wrote a book about his condition. <laughs> Tim Falconer. He is, was 54 when he came to visit my lab, and that's where he discovered that he was in music because he only had one complaint: is to sing out of tune. And I really invite you to to read his book, which is a fascinating description because he writes so beautifully as well and has a very good sense of humor. He just appeared last year, but let me illustrate it with his condition uh, because we filmed him several times. So typically, they fail to detect pitch deviance, like here. There are two melodies, and we ask them if it is the same or different. say that was different. I think there was an extra pause in there. Same. And you could see on the face that he couldn't tell, he couldn't detect them. Now the best part. So we play with the melody so that uh, the melody is one semitone apart from the accompaniment. This is really a disorder related to pitch structure. And they are insensitive to this kind of change, while newborns are sensitive to this. They do perceive this change. So let me play to you the first example. And uh, of course, we don't ask uh, non-musicians if it's dissonant or consonant. We just ask if it's pleasant or unpleasant. Ten is really pleasant. Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and typically, we'd say everybody laughs. I don't understand why. And this is really the problem with this condition. They are unaware of what's happening. They have no idea what is wrong and what is correct. And they sing, most of them sing out of tune, and they are unaware of it. It's just because other people tell them that they are, you know, a little bit off. Like, like Tim, he's not really off, as you will see. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Mahela. Happy birthday to you. But what is really nice is when we ask him to sing on La La La. La 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 That wasn't even close. He knows that he doesn't know what the tune is, but he's improvising, as well as the whole family. I'll give you an example later. But what is really interesting, 
is this fact that in terms of, I mean, Tim must be average here. Here are the musics, and uh, we have a large pool of uh, 38 musics, and the, here are the controls. So each dot represents one, the average of one subject. Each syllable is really analyzed uh, syllable by syllable. And as you can see, they do seem less in tune than uh, controls. One hundred uh, cents means one semitone, and this is the building block of the tonal western system. It is two ad adjacent keys on a keyboard. And as you can see, they are indeed uh, deviant in, that in, in those terms. Uh, but what is very fascinating is that maybe they are out of tune relative to what they should sing, but they are in key. That is, the, the intervals they are singing are really in the key, or at least as well as control. They don't make so many errors in those terms. And, uh, and what is very interesting is that when they improvise like uh, Tim, they really made uh, fewer uh, errors. So the idea is really we should improvise a little more. <laughs> and it is hereditary. And uh, I'll play just the mother, but this is really a signature of the whole family. I just don't want this to be uh, later on YouTube. Elsie Falconer. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear friend. Happy birthday to you. Not everybody does. I mean, that's fantastic about this family because most of them are affected. I mean, these are the black shapes. I mean, most of them are. Of course, a few are not are spared, so we can say it's not really in the environment. It is in their genes. And we knew it is uh, really hereditary. So if you have one relative in your uh, family or in close uh, relative, then uh, there are 30% chance or 10 times at least more chances that you have a risk for amusia. So it is heritable. So we try to identify what are the genetic variants of this condition because it has been so successful for speech disorders. And for the moment, um, it has been without success. The only thing I can say, and still it is a negative finding, is that we have no evidence of FOXP2 mutation. Um, so... It's like finding a needle in a haystack, but we will continue because I really think that uh, this is worthwhile because it has been found for speech disorders, and likewise, I believe that uh, it, it may provide new entry points to the neurobiology of learning disorders in general, not just amusia. And to do so, what is very important is to know what's happening in the brain, and we do know a lot about the neural correlates of this disorder, because it is a cortical disorder. Here, back to Tim, we measured the uh, accurate fasciculus. This is a major fiber tract, I should illustrate on the right side of my brain, uh, that relates the auditory cortex to the inferior frontal cortex on the right side of the brain. And as you can see, Tim here is in uh, red, 
and it's much smaller than a control illustrated here in blue. But of course, you compute that uh, across many different in music cases, and you can compare that to controls. And it has been f found in many different studies that they do have a connectivity issue. So the main um, problem with their brain is a reduced connectivity between these two regions, uh, the auditory cortex and the inferior frontal cortex. And it, uh, it is really in terms of functional anomalies as well as structural anomalies. We do find structural anomalies in the auditory cortex and the inferior frontal cortex by having more gray matter. Uh, but it doesn't seem to uh, lead to deficits in uh, functioning. And so a working hypothesis explanation of the disorder now is in, in terms, at least it's mine, uh, it is in terms of recurrent processing between the auditory cortex and the inferior frontal cortex, and the idea that uh, they do have an intact representation of musical pitch in the auditory cortex, so it, the bottom-up information is reaching really their brain, but they have poor feedback control between the right inferior frontal cortex and the auditory cortex, so the top-down aspect. This is illustrated here. And uh, so the information is reaching the auditory cortex correctly, but it is really this loop that is malfunctioning in their case, so that the auditory cortex is really encapsulated. It's not influenced by the way they are processing or wanting to process. So let me just illustrate that with the EEG recordings. We did use different neuro neuroimaging techniques, but this one is really the most um, revealing in this aspect. And so we presented melodies like this one and asked them if there an incongruity. Uh, so the first one. You should say that's fine. The reason incongruity, if you are not a music, otherwise you, there is no overlap uh, in distribution. So these are the musics and these are the controls. Each bar represents one subject. But what was really fascinating, and it has been replicated later on, is that we found a negative, early negative response in the brain of our musics as well as in controls here. And while uh, the, we only found a P600, that means that they are consciously detecting the uh, deviance, the pitch deviance, uh, accompanied by a P600, only in controls and never in a music. So we have a clear signature here of what's going on in their brain. The auditory cortex, which is really responsible for the N200, is responding uh, to the deviance, but not, it's not integrated consciously. And it's not a problem of attention because we have a design situation where we controlled for attention. In this case, it was a click they had to detect. We replicated the same findings. So this explains why uh, I, I believe it is a question of intact bottom-up information because the N200, also called Iran or mismatch negativity, uh, seems to, to be replicated and reflect this uh, uh, bottom-up processing, while the feedback uh, revealed by the P300 or P600 uh, reflects a poor control between the right inferior frontal gyrus and the auditory cortex.
And it is really a pitch awareness disorder because it's really so high level. Pitch regularities of tonal music are registered and predicted by the auditory cortex of a music without leading to conscious report. Uh, and what is really missing is a normal feedback loop to learn from errors. And it seems that really error cor correction requires uh, intention and, and our awareness. So to summarize, what have we learned from congenital amusia? Here are only the things currently that I think are the most important. Uh, first of all, conscious error correction is really fundamental principle of how the human brain learns and we are not always conscious of the way we correct ourselves. Uh, of course, during learning and uh, when we are very young. Also, functional specialization can emerge from distributed brain networks. It's no longer the case that you can think of the brain like a really focal brain regions. It is a distributed neural network, as I've illustrated. And a developmental anomaly can disconnect the nodes of a network and give rise to severe yet specific learning disorders. And finally, the right frontotemporal connectivity seems to be essential to develop a normal cognitive system for music. But I'd like to finish to end on a positive note because uh, I'm interested in those ones too. Uh, that is, the ones who dance so well. And this is really something we are starting, uh, st uh, studying what I believe is the other extreme, the high end of the spectrum, those of the musical prodigies. And I'd like just for you to uh, listen to a young uh, Indian uh, prodigy uh, like this one at the age of nine, and I will decrease. And it goes on for five hours. It does, it does. And here at the age of four. Uh, and at one year, I mean before speaking. He has support for sure, but I'd like to understand how is it possible to have this kind of performance. So I do consider them as congenital anomalies, happy ones, of course. Um, and uh, because there are recent findings showing that really genetic endowment is more predictive of musical achievement than the number of hours of practice that even the propensity to practice appears to be under genetic influence. <laughs> you laugh, but this is the result of a large sample of twins re, uh, study. And the learning outcomes can be predicted by the pre-existing structural and functional brain features. So I'm afraid if you are not a prodigy, you may not have it. So musical prodigies provide really an ideal paradigm for investigating the neurobiology of musicality, and that to which I'm now turning for the future. So I hope in maybe in 10 years from now to give you uh, a key or the code of something of access or entry points to this uh, special talent. So thank you for your attention.
So I'd like to uh, tell you a bit about a young man who I've worked with now for 32 years, I think, uh, Derek Paravicini. Here's a picture of Derek uh, at 26 weeks when he was born, weighing a little over 700 grams, about one and a half pounds. So Derek could literally fit on the palm of an adult's hand. And he had a fierce fight for survival. This was 38 years ago, so the kind of therapeutic treatments for very premature infants were still quite primitive. For example, there's no no way of measuring Derek's um, oxygen saturation levels consistently. So to measure oxygen, they had to take a tiny droplet of blood from his finger, rush off to the machine to measure it that took half an hour, by which time, of course, the oxygen had fluctuated again. So a little surprise, really, that Derek um, developed retinopathy of prematurity, which is when the blood vessels at the back of the eye forced the retina forward. And his early development was also very delayed. Uh, he was later diagnosed with severe learning difficulties with a verbal IQ of about 57 and autism. As a child, his speech was largely echolalic. So he, rather than sort of speak with semantic understanding, he tended to repeat back whatever was said to him. But um, the very good news was he was brought up by a traditional British nanny, and she was determined that Derek was going to make the best of his life, whatever that was going to be. And she went up into the attic one day, despairing of finding something to entertain Derek, Uh, and she found this old uh, toy, really, toy keyboard, uh, which which she plugged in and gave to him. And not thinking anything of it. In fact, Derek just seemed to bash this thing for ages. And then suddenly they realized that, in fact, he wasn't bashing randomly. He'd actually taught himself to play chords and then tunes just through, through a process of self-discovery. I met up with Derek when he was four years old. And he'd already built up a large repertoire of pieces. Now, he'd had no tuition. Of course, he had no visual model to guide him because Derek was totally blind. He had very small hands. He was only four years old. And as a consequence, uh, he got a very eccentric technique, as you can see from the pictures. So um, there was lots of karate chops and fists and knuckles. And even the occasional nose went down to, <laughs> to pick out notes he couldn't, couldn't hear. By great good fortune, that same nanny who, who was responsible for Derek's upbringing pressed the button on the tape recorder um, just briefly. And so we've got a little fragment of what it was like uh, to hear Derek's playing when he was four years old. Here's a little bit, see if you you recognise it. It is a miracle. Here's a boy who understood virtually nothing about the world around him, had really no useful language, and yet, without any encouragement to start with, uh, he taught himself to to play the piano, one of the great human accomplishments. I think the important thing about that earlier recording, though, is it, it shows us such a lot about the way 
that Derek's musical mind was working. For a start, he wasn't just copying what he heard, because the recording he heard was a voice and piano. So he had to rearrange that duet for a single uh, instrument, of course. Also, because he had such small hands, he had to change the spacing of the chords in order to be able to play them. And so the result, really, to me, provides evidence of genuine musical intelligence and, indeed, the beginnings of creativity. We've heard that savants are more than just mimics. And I think Derek, even in that very early stage, um, shows a genuinely creative musical mind at work. Just to show you a bit about Derek uh, today, he's now aged 38. I think he's been to California about six times now. So he's very cross he's not here today, I can tell you, um, because he, although he doesn't enjoy 12 hours on a plane, he does enjoy uh, making music when he lands. But he now has his own jazz quartet. And I think he, music for him is so much more than just a technical exercise. It, it's genuinely a social and emotionally fulfilling activity. It's incredibly important for his identity and self-esteem. If you ask Derek what he does, he says, I'm a pianist. Um, it's important for friendship, for shared feelings, and even for humour. So here's Derek um, playing today. If I ask you to guess the piece initially, uh, you might be wrong. So there's a warning. This is Derek being witty. see how Derek's evolved, hopefully, in the intervening 32 years. So what, what kick-started Derek's musical learning, and how, how is it he can do what he does, and indeed with Leslie Lemke as well? And it's the same unusual skill that all musical savants, and indeed all musical prodigies rely on, which is universal absolute pitch. Now, absolute pitch is the ability to reproduce and to recognize pitches, not only in music, but in any, any environmental sound. And it starts very early. It's gen generally in place by 24 months. It's interesting seeing that young um, Indian drummer. I've certainly seen young blind children aged 12 months start to play the piano. By 18 months, uh, absolute pitches in place, and they're playing pieces in the right key. So if these abilities are going to start, they're going to start very early. So absolute pitch is very rare in Western populations as a whole, about 0.01%. Doing a kind of meta-analysis of all the literature I can find, plus all the blind children I've worked with, which is hundreds over the years, something like 45% of those who are born blind or who lose their sight early on go on to develop absolute pitch. Among partially sighted children, it's around 11%, and around those on the autism spectrum, around 8%. 
So you can see there's something massively different going on with a fair proportion of these children. It's interesting is about whether it's genetic or environmental is something one can debate because there's nothing genetic about Derek's uh, musicality. I think it's the fact he was born blind that made the structural differences, the way his brain developed. In fact, that's it. I think it's largely to do with his exceptional early cognitive environments that blindness or visual impairment and autism create. Presumably there must be a genetic component too because not all blind children develop AP. But what it is, it's a focus on absolute perceptual qualities of things for their own sake that seems to make the difference. So I'll play you... One, one wonderful thing about Derek is he's, he loves psychological experiments. He never gets bored. Um, I, I do, there's one particular experiment, I'm going to play you a bit of it, where I play him 120 different chords, um, which would drive anyone crazy and ask him to play them back. Um, most people freak out after about 20 of these things. And after the end of a, I remember the end of a hard days of, of uh, analyze, uh, taking data from Derek, he'd say, can we do the chords again tomorrow, madam? I said, wow, Derek. <laughs> right. Um, so here, um, here's a sample of those 120 chords. Uh, if there's someone with absolute pitch in the audience, you might be able to pick out the notes. But this is the only information Derek got. And I guess most people wouldn't be able to tell you how many notes are in each chord, let alone what notes were being played. Here's a sample of them. in the last one? No. I wouldn't have a clue. There were nine, in fact. Here's the chords, and here's Derek's responses. This is me. This is Derek. This is me and Derek. We're on the second line. what Derek does, as you might pick up, he actually adds notes in, typically. Uh, He very rarely misses them out. So here are Derek's stats from the 120 chords, with four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine notes. You can see he got all the four-note chords absolutely right. Um, He got about 96% of the five notes, and so on, down to about 93% uh, at the nine notes. In fact, um, it was interesting seeing the bit from 60 Minutes, because Leslie Stahl interviewed Derek um, at some length and got him to play 10-note chords, and he was still about 92%, which is amazing when you think the sheer motor programming to get 10 fingers over the right notes at the right time is extraordinary. But, again, interestingly, it's not this sort of myth of savants as kind of superhuman beings that just don't conform to the rules that the rest of us play by. For example, Derek did much better with tonal chords than what you might call non-tonal. In other words, standard Western tonality Derek was better at. He was also more successful from the bottom of the chords up. So in other words, he was listening more structurally. Uh, Most of us, when we listen to music, we tend to hear the melody line. Skillful musicians tend to hear from the bass line up because that's telling them structure. So in other words, Derek was listening with musical intelligence. He wasn't just a perceptual machine that could copy. And if, in fact, if we look at how Derek did compared with other savants and with expert 
what you might call neurotypical musicians with absolute pitch, you can see, in fact, there is a fairly continuous distribution. Derek's at the top, the top blue line with S. The other savants are in solid lines, and then the neurotypical musicians with absolute pitch are in the dotted lines. And I'm quite sure if I found enough subjects, there'd be quite a continuous distribution. So in other words, the savants are using the same strategies as the, as the skillful, trained musicians. So, as I say, it, it suggests that these people live, exist on a continuum, and that both use the same structurally-based listening strategies. Right, another study now, uh, long-term memory is a feature of all musical savants, as Darrell said. And sometimes this is said to be eidetic or photographic memory. Is that absolutely, is that in fact true? Right, here's another mean test that people think you must be mad doing this. So I composed a special, special new piece of music for Derek to learn. You have to compose something, because if he's heard it, then he's probably already remembered it. And um, all he did was to hear it and play it back. So imagine that you're sitting down at the piano, you haven't got the music in front of you, and you hear this. you reckon you'd be able to play? Well, I'll show you what Derek did in a minute. Just to say this was quite a long-term study over four years. We did 26 sessions with increasingly long breaks between two days in the first case and two years in the last one. And in each session after the first, Derek tried to play whatever he'd remember. He then listened to Chromatic Blues again, uh, attempted to play once more, and then listened once more to Chromatic Blues. So his very first attempt, he just heard exactly what you've heard. And in fact, he got about 30% of it right. Here was his... um this shows, you know, one of the real dangers, I think, of a lot of savant studies is that unless you do a pretty systematic analysis, it's terribly hard to know. In other words, if I just played that piece in a concert, this so, so often happens, people play Derek something in a, in a live situation. He then plays it back. And of course, no one knows if he's got it exactly right or not, because we haven't got Derek's ear. So I think a lot of savant myths are built on slightly dubious um, 
anecdotes, shall we say. So what did Derek do? What was he going on there? Well, it was evidently beyond the capacity of his working memory, but he couldn't help but produce something that made musical sense. In other words, he's using music like a natural language. In the same way, if we recall a story, we don't get every note right, but we get the overall structure right, we get the meaning right. And that's what Derek did. He got the feel of the music right, he got the overall structure right, and he got some of the detail right. But it wasn't completely right. So again, yet again, we see creativity coming in. Derek had to be musically creative in order to make ends meet. So what did he do? Well, he used the, frag- the musical fragments in a different order. In order to make them fit, he had to transform them in real time. And he introduced stock phrases from sort of rhythm and blues style, from Count Basie, from a blues turnaround and so on. So in other words, Derek's functioning exactly like a skilled jazz musician would function in that context. So in fact, it's anything but this kind of photographic memory. It's a characteristic of, of neurotypical recall. And in fact, here's a comparison with uh, Sasha, who was an expert neurotypical jazz pianist with absolute pitch, whom we gave the same test to. And you can see, yeah, Derek, Derek outperforms him after the initial bursts. But essentially, Sasha is doing you know, not, not, not badly at all, much better than most, most of us could do. And analysis shows he was using very similar strategies to Derek. You can see that Sasha gave up long before Derek. Derek carried on for another two years. In fact, occasionally now he'll say, can I do chromatic blues? I don't want to say, no, no. Right, last of all, very often um, I get asked, and Derek gets asked, what about modern music, this problem, atonal music, it's sometimes called. Now, atonal music was introduced by Schoenberg, amongst others, at the beginning, well, first half of the 20th century, I suppose. And it consciously avoids traditional musical grammar, syntax, and rules. And most listeners report finding atonal music discordant. In other words, it sounds like there are mistakes in it, and it's very difficult to remember. Schoenberg said all he wanted was for people to whistle his tunes in the street, but they (laughs) never got it. In fact, Tchaikovsky annoyed him particularly because people would whistle Tchaikovsky's tunes. (laughs) So how did Derek get on? Well, I gave him a bit of Schoenberg's first atonal masterpiece, it's called, uh, to, to, to try and play. So again, if you close your eyes and just pretend to be Derek, this is what he heard. Here's a young man who can hit nine-note chords with 93% accuracy. He couldn't do it. He completely couldn't do it. Here's the original first phrase. Here's Derek. see, even his absolute pitch, his flawless absolute pitch, was confused when there's a lack of background syntax and rules. I find quite extraordinary. I thought I had to check the equipment. I thought, Derek, you've got the first note wrong. I've never heard him make a mistake like that. 
So in other words, the atonal, the, the, the music without rules, even confused Derek's perception. Just a time to play you a little bit of what happened a week later. I asked him to play it a week later. And the result, he'd stepped back from Schoenberg into the world of Wagner. It's extraordinary. Here's a little bit of it. On. In other words, Derek had corrected the wrong notes. <laughs> so, in conclusion, um, Derek and other savants, I've worked with great pleasure working with about six prodigious savants, have an unusual degree of expertise, but his engagement appears to be qualitatively similar to neurotypical musicians with absolute pitch. In other words, it seems to be a matter of degree rather than a fundamental difference. And I'd like to think that perhaps we'll gain more insights about neurotypicality by looking, as it were, the opposite way around. We tend to view savants from the view of neurotypical, of sort of mean-based psychological tests. Whereas, in fact, if we look at the world of the savants and see what light can they shed on all of us, we might be in a stronger position in some ways. And ultimately, I think we're all part of the same continuum of human neurodiversity. Thank you. Daryl Trefford could not make it in person, but he did manage to videotape the, the talk. The human brain is the most mysterious piece of matter on Earth. And the more we know about it, the more magical the whole system seems to be. However, it is only now in the 21st century with new techniques, that scientists can for the first time open up the secret chambers in our heads and watch the complex system of hundreds of billions of neurons at work. Among scientists' most fascinating subjects of study are a small group of enigmatic talents, the so-called savants, the knowing ones. Savants can multiply five-digit numbers in their heads or know 12,000 books by heart, or play a melody on the piano after hearing it only once. Over half of savants are autistic. Others develop these superhuman talents only after a brain injury. Experts all over the world are now starting to ask themselves, is it in fact a defect that turns a person into a genius? Is there a hidden genius within all of us? Until we can understand the savant, we can't understand ourselves. And no model of brain function is going to be complete until it can fully account for this incredible uh, disparity. Hello from the Trefford Center in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, a unit of Ignatian Healthcare dedicated to better understanding the human brain and human potential. What I want to do today is to share some things that we do know about Savant Syndrome 120 years later after Jay Langdon Down first described Savant Syndrome. Savant Syndrome is a remarkable condition in which persons with a developmental disorder, including autism or other central nervous system disease or injury, have some astonishing islands of genius that stand in marked, jarring contrast to overall handicap. 
Savant syndrome occurs in approximately 1 in 10 persons with autism and in approximately 1 in 1,400 persons with other developmental disabilities or other central nervous system disorders. Since these other developmental disability and central nervous system disorders are more common than autism, it turns out that approximately 75% of savants are autistic and 25% have other central nervous system disabilities. Therefore, not all savants are autistic and not all autistic persons are savants. Savant skills occur on a spectrum. First are splinter skills. The second level are talented savants. And the third level are prodigious savants. Prodigious savants are persons whose skills are so remarkable that they are called prodigy or genius if they were to occur in a person without disability. Savant syndrome is always associated with a massive memory, a memory that is extraordinarily deep but very narrow within its confines. Savant skills typically increase and persist rather than diminish or disappear. Savant abilities are not frivolous. Instead, they can act as a conduit toward normalization with an increase in language abilities, social strengths, and daily living skills. I met my first Savant in 1962. Now, 55 years later, it's rather hard to summarize in 18 minutes my journey with savants. So what I want to do instead is to concentrate on the savant I know best, who is Leslie Lemke, who demonstrates many of the characteristics of savant syndrome. I have known Leslie Lemke for 30 years. He is a prodigious musical savant. Like all savants, he knows things he never learned. He instinctively knows the rules of music put there by genetic memory. Genetic memory, which congenital and acquired savants demonstrate, is the genetic transmission of knowledge equals nature, and it can be expanded by learning, which equals nurture. It's hard to say what's more striking about Leslie Lemke. His skills as a pianist are his amazing life story. Leslie was born with cerebral palsy and a rare disease that necessitated the removal of his eyes when he was only a few months old. Many might pity, but who could handle the challenge of raising such a child? May and Joe Lemke of Milwaukee, Wisconsin did. They adopted Leslie when he was just six months old. Using patience and love as their inspiration, May and Joe worked with Leslie, attempting to achieve not the miraculous, but the mundane. Functions such as walking, swallowing, and eventually swimming all took effort and endless practice. It seemed the only way Leslie would ever even approach a normal life would be through a miracle. Late at night, one evening, a miracle did occur. When he's about 14 years old, they watched the Sunday night movie which happened to be Sincerely Yours, and the theme song is Liberace's theme song, which is Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto. Uh, they watched, and Leslie listened because he's blind, and they went to bed. And uh, then about two or three in the morning, uh, May woke and heard some music coming, and she asked Joe, hubby, did you leave the television on? No. And so she went, and there was Leslie <clears throat> playing Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto from beginning to end, having heard it one time. And I said to Joe, Hey, Joe, did you leave that television on? He said, no, why? I said, listen, where's that beautiful music coming from? And he said, so I got up, went to the boy's room, and I had got that little piano in his room, and the boy had suddenly 
slid over like this onto that chair plane all the way through. Leslie is blind, has spastic diplegia, and has never had a piano lesson in his life. Leslie knows things he never learned. That is genetic memory. Leslie has a measured IQ of 68. But in this segment, instead of asking Leslie to play a piece after hearing it for the first time, he is asked to play the piece with the person. Leslie then plays with the person, receiving, processing, and outputting simultaneously. That's called parallel processing. That is not consistent with an IQ of 68. IQ testing in savants is not reliable. Savants point in the direction of multiple intelligences. Leslie has shown a transition from recall to improvisation to creation, as all savants do if followed long enough. Savants can be creative. In his concert now, there is always an audience request portion. In this 2015 concert, Mary, May's daughter, asked Leslie to play audience requests. All right, let's go to see how fast we can do this. Uh, Eternal, I don't know if he knows these now. I'm just going to play through, and like we know about Leslie... He will never deny he doesn't know one of the songs. He's always going to say yes, and he will play it. And if he doesn't get the one you requested, he's making one up. <laughs> That's what he does. <laughs> this one's called Eternal Father, the Navy Hymn. He don't know it. I don't know. I don't know if that's right. Is that right? Is that right? Okay. Those endearing young charms, an old Irish song. I don't think he knows this one. You know this one? Yes, I know. Those endearing young charms. Those endearing young charms till the day that I knew. You making it up? Trip, yes, I'm making it up. The dawn, the road, and the army come on and enjoy. He's endearing young 
Television. Oh, we don't watch television. No, you don't. No. <laughs> no, we don't. Leslie demonstrates that savants can be creative. They are not mere tape recorders, or copy machines. If you follow Savants long enough, there is a transition from massive recall to improvisation to creation. Savants can be creative, and Leslie demonstrates that. Supporting and loving families are such a vital part of bringing Savant syndrome to full bloom. May Lemke, the woman who willed a miracle, died in 1993. In her final years, May had developed Alzheimer's disease. Just before her death, Leslie played for her one more time. Just as she brought him to life, his music lifted May from her Alzheimer's disease for a brief time, a fitting payback of love and the power of music. ability is at a prodigious level because it would be spectacular if that were to be seen in any of us it would be spectacular equally though Daniel has been blessed with almost miraculous good fortune the line between profound talent and profound disability seems really a surprisingly thin one the way Daniel can describe his inner world is giving scientists a window into the brain that they've never had. But the truth is, their journey of exploration is only just beginning.
The bigger question is whether we all have some of those abilities within us, and that is what I refer to as the little rain man within each of us. What I do, it isn't, I don't think it's supernatural, I don't think it's something that can't be explained. Who knows, there may be abilities here that everyone can perhaps tap into in some way. Savant Syndrome is challenging us to think in new ways about intelligence and what intelligence is. Savant Syndrome has tremendous implications for better understanding both the brain and human potential. Savants are not mere copy machines or tape recorders. They can be creative with a metamorphosis from recall to improvisation uh, to creation. You can explore this in more detail at www.savantsyndrome.com or www.treffertcenter.com. Dedicated to preserving, sharing, and expanding research into Savant Syndrome, other forms of exceptional brain performance and human potential. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.